Welcome to Liberty Chats, produced by members of the Steamboat Institute's Emerging Leaders Council. Thank you for joining us. We talk to a variety of experts, leaders, journalists, and policymakers about our nation's founding principles, why they are still so relevant and essential to preserving freedom for everyone, what specific challenges and threats they face today, and how those founding principles best safeguard and empower everyone's ability, young and old, to attain prosperity and personal happiness. Hi, everyone. Welcome to Liberty Chats, a podcast from the Steamboat Institute. My name is Carl Honiger, and I'm a member of the Emerging Leaders Council, a leadership program out of the Institute. I'm excited to be here today with my guest, Molly Ziegler-Hemingway. She's the editor-in-chief of The Federalist and a senior journalism fellow at Hillsdale College. She's also the co-author of the book Justice on Trial, The Kavanaugh Confirmation and the Future of the Supreme Court, She's the author of Rigged, How the Media, Big Tech, and the Democrats Seized Our Elections. We'd like to talk about your most recent book here because I actually remember back about 2019, mid-October, I was at a Freedom Works conference. Uh, then they had a panel on election security. They actually had somebody on the panel who was from more of a left-wing nonprofit talking about, believe it or not, Uh, electronic voting machines and talking about the importance of securing those, talking about how it was super important at the county level for election security to, for example, not hook up the machine to the internet months and months in advance of the actual election. Very basic uh, things that it seemed like there was a consensus among both left and right that this was important. Now, in your book, you talk about how the narratives kind of changed from it used to be okay to talk about why election security was important, how possibly things could get rigged, um, and how now that seems kind of like a right-wing talking point. Um, Could you discuss that more and what the change was, why it's unfair? Right. Well, both left and right should care about election integrity, and they both do usually around the time of a close election loss. But there has been a long history of Democrats questioning the results of presidential elections that they didn't win. You know, you might remember in 2000, they said that George W. Bush was selected, not elected. In 2004, they actually challenged the election on the grounds that Karl Rove had manipulated voting machines in Ohio to secure a re-election victory for Bush. And that involved both members of both houses in Congress who objected to that election. Um, Nothing compares to what happened in 2016 when the entire establishment and the media and the Democrat Party just refused to accept the results of the 2016 election, claimed that Donald Trump had stolen it by colluding with Russia. They put the country through absolute hell with that conspiracy theory. Um, But it's true that, you know, elections have been close in our history and that Election integrity has affected elections, particularly at the local or state level, but even presidential. I mean, a lot of people question the 1960 result, which was down to 118,000 votes. And a lot of it was about Chicago having suspiciously high vote totals for Kennedy, Texas, which had previously been rigged by Lyndon B. Johnson, having some questionable results. But 
all of that changed in 2020 when all of a sudden you weren't allowed to even ask a question about election integrity, even though we all know and we all lived through far and away the weirdest election of our lifetimes. Yeah. Now, in your book, you actually talk about uh, not just theories, but actual facts and the data and stories behind, for example, Mark Zuckerberg's um, influence in government election offices. Could you discuss more what that program was and why we should care about it? Right. So when I wanted to look, it bothered me that you weren't allowed to talk about the 2020 election. And it just, it's the kind of thing where I decided I had to dig into it. And I was mostly interested in threats to election integrity coming from tech oligarchs or from the media corporations, because they are both behaving in a way that affects free and fair elections. But then I ended up spending a lot of time on two big threats to election integrity that came from the left. And the first was that there was this coordinated campaign to change hundreds of laws and processes across the country to enable there to be literally millions of mail-in ballots flooding the system. And again, prior to 2020, everybody acknowledged that mail-in balloting is the type of balloting that is most susceptible to integrity problems. And that just stands to reason. It's done completely without normal oversight that you would expect in an election. And you're sort of requiring a lot of people to behave honorably. And that's not what you want to do in an election situation. But um, so that campaign was run, interestingly enough, by the very same guy who ran the 2016 Russia collusion hoax operation. His name is Mark Elias. He was Hillary Clinton's general counsel. He's always general counsel for like big Democrat firms. And he's kind of known as an election fixer of a kind. And he ran the operation to change all these laws to enable tens of millions of mail-in ballots to flood the system. And then the second part, big picture of this operation was that Mark Zuckerberg financed the private takeover of government election offices in the blue areas of swing states. And they did this so that they could run Democrat get out the vote operations from inside the government. It was totally coordinated, very widespread, very effective and very dangerous. And there's as a result, you've had quite a few states actually ban the the practice of a private takeover of government election offices, although the threat is still there in all the states that didn't do it yet. And also the threat is there because um, the people who orchestrated this are trying new ways to compromise the integrity of elections going forward. Okay. Yeah. And the whole thing about this is get out the vote. Voter registration is not a new thing. Uh, It was actually very um, influential in the Obama election, especially um, in 2008. And, but what you're pointing out is that this is going even further. Oh, this and is totally new. And, and the amount of money that was spent is incredible. But it's fundamentally different because in okay. previous iterations, you know, there's a, there's an aspect of all's fair and love and war with political campaigns. Like you do something as a political campaign, the other side might complain, they might think it's dirty, but it's being done by the campaign itself. What made 2020 different is that this crossed that bright red line we have between political campaigns and government offices. We have had government offices administer elections for more than 150 years, and we've done that to avoid corruption or partisan, you know, giving up one 
political party an advantage. It would be, you know, when they put all these people into the government offices to manage huge parts of the of the Democrat get out the vote operations, again, blue areas of swing states that they were having, they were financing and providing personnel and other things for all sorts of things from voter registration to ballot translation, to get out the vote efforts, to ballot curing, where you tell one group of people that they need to do this to fix their ballot, but you don't tell the other group of people in other counties. So this was like if um, the Kansas City chiefs were handling the entire operation of officiating and scoreboards and they were paying for the people and they were training them. And then you were expecting Broncos fans to say that even when it came down to close calls that went toward the chiefs, that they, they're not allowed to question the propriety of it. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's, that's very good. I like how you point out where the money went in terms of they call this a nonpartisan operation, but you can very clearly see where the percentage of the money went you know, over 90% to these blue leaning counties, right? Yeah. And you, you know, they say it was nonpartisan because they said, well, we'll fund a Republican county and a Democrat county. And I don't know how much they were involved, you know, in every state. But if you take, for example, Pennsylvania, they literally gave $10 million to Philadelphia, but like 5,000 to the Republican county next door. $5,000 to Republican county doesn't affect anything at all. $10 million to Philadelphia, that completely changes the integrity of the process. And it's done in an area that votes overwhelmingly um, Democrat. So it was a brilliant strategy, but it did come at the cost of the integrity of our election system. So huge costs. For sure. For sure. And the reason why we should care about the integrity of the election system is this isn't the last election in this nation. I know a lot of Republicans like to talk about how we need to move on. Um, we need to get over it kind of thing. But in terms of what you discussed in this book and demonstrated is that this will impact future elections if we don't recognize the reality of what happened. Right. And I think people act like this was just something that affected the presidential election, but it also affected the Senate. I mean, you think people sometimes say, say they're confused about how in 2020 the House actually gained Republican members but Republicans lost the Senate and they lost the presidency. And this private takeover of government election offices goes a long way to explaining that. And what I mean by that is when you take over the blue areas of swing states, that doesn't affect anything in the House because those people already vote Democrat and they already have Democrat members. Nationwide, you actually were seeing more support for Republicans, and that's why Republicans gained members in the House. But by taking over these key areas, they were able to affect the statewide results, both in the Electoral College and in the Senate races. And most dramatically, this occurred in Georgia, which went from like a very safe Republican state, five point Republican state into actually not just voting for Joe Biden, but also losing both of their Republican senators. And Mark Zuckerberg's groups spent like 10 percent of all of their funds in Georgia to achieve that outcome. I see. Yeah. And then in the book, you go on to discuss uh, censorship in terms of what is allowed to be talked about, specifically like the Hunter Biden laptop, I think. Very recently, you've been very vindicated. Everybody's been vindicated <laughs> on that. Um, but I think it plays into what we're seeing today. There was a American Moment conference they put on called Up From Chaos that you spoke at. You spoke about regime stenographers. And uh, what, what do you have to say about 
what we're seeing in terms of reporting on the Ukraine war, I think that there's so much history that could be included in reporting on this that's just being swept under the rug like we saw with the Hunter Biden. There's like personal connection that the Biden family has to Ukraine, and yet he's talking about regime change in Russia. What do you see is wrong with the current reporting? How do you, and also how do you think that we can cut through the bias when we do read news out of that conflict? Yeah, it's a really important thing for people to be good consumers of news in times of war. And what strikes me as interesting is after the Iraq war and after the mismanagement of the Afghanistan war, uh, a lot of people said that they weren't going to just do these mad rushes to war where you don't think about what your strategy is, whether it's in the national interest to engage in a particular war, what your exit strategy is, because you should, you know, how is this going to end? And even though I thought we'd kind of learned all these lessons over the last 20 years, we're seeing once again, people just kind of reflexively escalating even though the situation is much more dire right now than it was in Iraq or Afghanistan, because we're now dealing with a nuclear power and a person who does not have to accept a person and a country that doesn't have to accept conventional defeat. And that's because sadly, uh, Russia has what 6,000 or more nuclear warheads. And so you, yeah, you know, people of a certain age, they actually remember when when a lot of really brilliant minds work together to keep the Cold War cold and not hot. And it takes a lot of effort to keep things from getting hot when you're dealing with geopolitical conflicts. But it seems that in the U.S., we have a couple of failures. One would be there seem to be no statesmen trying to figure out a way to avoid more death and destruction in Ukraine and more and, and much less like an escalation that involves an actual hot war throughout Europe or, God forbid, a nuclear conflict that involves the U.S. or others. But then there's also not enough skeptical media coverage of what they're being told from administration leaders or other people. And I think it's an embarrassing moment for the media in general, because they claimed that if Donald Trump were elected, that we would have nuclear conflict. And we have never been this close to nuclear, or not never, we have not in a long time, not in decades yes. been this close to nuclear conflict. And yet it's happening with the guy who was supposedly some great statesman with foreign policy experience. During the Trump administration, we had peace breaking out all over contrary to what we were told. And now it just looks bad for the media that kind of ran his campaign in 2020, that uh, everything's going to H-E double hockey sticks, whether it's foreign policy or economic policy or border policy or anything. I mean, it's just, it's all a disaster. And I think people know that they're kind of responsible for it and they don't want to admit it. But um, the situation in Ukraine is fraught. We want to avoid we don't want to just fight a war to the last Ukrainian, which seems to be the yeah. proposal put forth by the Biden administration right now. We want to think deeply, like, how much do we want to do this proxy war? What is the effect on our economy? Does it keep our eye off the ball from the glooming threat of China? Um, you know, are we are we capable of fighting a two front war if it comes to that one against nuclear Russia, one against nuclear China? I mean, you want people who are wise and restrained and thoughtful. I mean, you also want to stop Putin and Russian aggression, um, but you want to do it in the, you want to do it in a way that meets with our national interest. Yeah. Almost like it makes you think of Eisenhower, how he had the military experience 
to know that we need to end, I mean, didn't fully end the Korean War, but you basically shut it down in terms of an active battle zone. And so, yeah, I remember in 2014, there was, it was revealed Ken Delanian um, worked for, it was the LA Times, and he was literally sending like his, before he released his reporting to the CIA to get their approval first. <laughs> and yeah, so, and I think he lost his job over that or okay. something like that. Um, but of course, he became a mouthpiece for corrupt intel officials during the Trump administration. He was one of the premier purveyors of the Russia collusion hoax. I don't, don't think to my knowledge that he has repented or apologized for his role in that conspiracy theory that had no basis, in fact. Yeah. Um, and I'm, I haven't followed exactly what he's doing now with, with the Ukraine. Ukrainian situation, whether he's continuing to reprise, you know, he's reprising his role as a intel mouthpiece, regardless of what the facts say. But we, it's very important, you know, we can stumble our way into conflicts. And I feel like the Biden administration, first of all, their weakness led in part to this invasion. Um, Russia's totally responsible for this bad action. I mean, it yeah. doesn't, doesn't change that. But you also have to remember, like, uh, Putin took advantage of when we were distracted in Iraq to invade Georgia. And then he went into Crimea, Crimea during the Obama administration. He went nowhere during the Trump administration. And then yeah. he's now done this massive invasion of Ukraine under the Biden administration. And so I think it does show us that American weakness can be provocative and that it can affect whether Putin thinks he can make such a move. And then after the weakness, we have Biden just all over the place. You know, he everything he says sort of suggests that, that he does view regime change in Russia, which is a you know quite yes. dramatic statement as the yes. goal. But then, you know, they're always trying to walk it back somehow. But our actions also indicate that we are fully involved in these very un, un ill-advised leaks to the media that we were responsible in large part for the sinking of the Moskva or other, you know, targeting of generals. That is yeah. That's very escalatory. And you might remember there was a fake news story during the during the Trump administration that turned out not to be true of Russians paying bounties to the Taliban for American soldiers to be killed. And we lost our minds over that. And that wasn't even true. But then you have I think it was the New York Times reporting that we are helping them target their generals. Well, if that's true, that's pretty serious. And we need to probably, when well, not probably, we absolutely need to have a debate and a vote in Congress to authorize this war if this is what we're going to do. This little game they play of getting us embroiled in wars without getting enough input from the American people is not how our constitution sets up how we should handle these things. Yeah, I agree. I agree. Thank you so much for talking to us today. I know we could talk for a very long time, but I wanted to... Uh, highlight anything that you have that you're working on right now. Um, and are you reading any books or articles you're finding interesting? Okay. So it will, this is very on point for our last discussion. I just picked up a book that I've just started called Sleepwalkers. I can't okay. remember the author or the subtitle, but it's all about this historian looks at how World War I started. And I think people always think about World War II and how people didn't stop Hitler when they should have, and it became a huge yeah. problem. And they're thinking about that right now with Putin, like we got to stop him now before he goes into another country. But we should also learn lessons from World War I, which was about how uh, lots of entangling alliances and poor decision-making by those people who were in those alliances led to 
led quickly to a horrific world war. And so you want to not make one war the only one that you learn lessons from, but really our entire history of of war and how to avoid war and how to do things that are in our interest. We want to fight wars that are in our interest. I mean, we never want to fight a war, but if you have to, you want it to be in your interest and you want to have clear objectives for victory. And that is something we've kind of moved away from in recent decades to our peril. Yeah. Well, thank you, Molly. This has been another episode of the Liberty Chats podcast. Thank you for listening. Thank you for listening to today's Liberty Chat. I'm Erica Anderson, the producer of the podcast. Our podcast editor is Fingers Malloy. My co-producers include Charlotte Whalen, Zachary Rogers, Lindsay Martin, and Christina Eastman, all members of the Steamboat Institute's Emerging Leaders Council, who represent the next generation of free market, free speech leadership. We hope you tune in again for our next Liberty Chat episode. Girl, you already know I wanna be, I wanna be free, I wanna be, wanna be free, yeah.